Monte Church. How are you this morning? Glad to have you here. Welcome. Happy anniversary. This is a special day. If you are our first-time guest here, then welcome. You are our honored guest, our VIP, our very important person. Thank you for coming and celebrating with us this morning. We're excited to have you. It's going to be a wonderful day. So many friends, so many uh, new faces, and so many familiar faces, and uh, I'm excited to see what God's going to do in the future. Welcome. Hopefully, you grabbed a cup of coffee on your way in. Hopefully, uh, you got a worship guide, and we're excited to kick off another new year of ministry. I really see um, our anniversary is kind of when our ministry year kind of kicks off and begins. And so we're excited to have you here as we uh, begin this brand new year of ministry. I love that video for so many reasons because all the people being interviewed, they've all started coming one year ago last year. There's several in that interviewed and there were several people that came. They just didn't make the cut. They just weren't pretty enough. So uh, sorry, y'all, if you know, just kidding. That's not at all what happened. All right. No, no, no. It's not what happened. We have Lots of other people who they were just saying, hey, you know what, Uh, we joined the church, we love it, but they're a little camera shy, and I don't blame them, it gets awkward. You think you're fine in front of cameras until you see one staring you in the face, and all of a sudden it's just like, you just can't talk. So, uh, really excited about those that came and that uh, did the video, it was fantastic, but we're looking to kick off another message here this morning. Next week, we kick off a brand new series, and it's going to be a marriage series. I'm really pumped, so I want to invite you back. If you thought today was good, next week you're not going to want to miss out, it's going to be fantastic. Well, if you have your Bibles, we're going to read out of the book of Isaiah. But before we get to Isaiah chapter number 43, let me just begin by a little bit of an introduction this morning. Have you ever thought about this? And um, I'm sure you have. You may not just talk about it out loud. Do you ever think God just works too slow? Like just not fast enough for you? And I know some of you are really spiritual here and you're like, no, never. Never, ever have those kind of thoughts. But if we were really honest, if it was just you and I sitting down for coffee, I think you and I would both come to the same agreement that there are times when we are in in our moments, I, I wouldn't even necessarily say a moment of weakness. I would say it's just a moment where we're saying, God, what's going on? I mean, what's going to happen with this situation? Uh, this relationship? When are you going to resolve this? Uh, what's going on with my job situation? Lord, what is going on with, with my estranged son? Lord, what is going on with the relationship with my spouse? What is happening here, God? I thought this was going to get resolved. Lord, I thought I was going to beat this disease. Lord, I thought I was going to see a difference in this job. I, think, I thought things were going to happen a lot faster. But why is it so slow? I've got a 90-year-old grandfather who's unsaved. I've been praying for for years, years. Still not saved. I've got things in my own life where I've thought, Lord, why is it taking so long for this to happen? Lord, why is it taking so long for things to develop? If you were talking to my two children, Megan and Austin, uh, oftentimes they would say something like this. This is taking forever. We could just be driving to the donut shop on Saturday. I took them to go get donuts. It's just about a mile from my house halfway there this is taking too long like okay so you're just gonna get out now tuck and roll baby you're out you're not gonna stick around for the donuts it's like no but I meet so many people like that that they're in the midst of their journey and they're just kind of like tuck and roll I'm out and they're done and this is not a message that is geared towards hey just be patient just be faithful just grin and bear it 
Matter of fact, I'm going to do something that I think a lot of preachers are afraid to kind of venture into these waters without sounding like a televangelist with a really slick suit and really shiny rings and maybe a little bling bling in his tooth asking for a million dollars type thing where it's kind of one of those where uh, it sounds too good to be true. And I think a lot of preachers, they shy away from it because they don't want to come across like that. And this morning, I don't want to come across as a quick fix it, name it, claim it, easy believism, but I need you to see something this morning. Because oftentimes, I feel like our perception of how God works turns into our reality of how God works. So if our perception is based on the fact that God is taking too long, I believe that influences our reality. And if you're sitting here this morning and you're waiting on something to happen and you're frustrated by the process, you're frustrated by yourself and you're allowing your perception of of things to affect your reality, you're going to live out that reality. It's almost a self-fulfilling prophecy where you in your own mind are saying this is just taking forever. It's just too long. And so things do seem longer than they really are. But the greatest misconception is that God works slowly. And not suddenly. Because you can go to the very first book of the Bible, can't we? Genesis chapter number one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I think Genesis one, two, and three are some of the most monumental chapters in all of scripture. I think we can find everything we need for the Christian life. If you were to say, hey, Pastor McKay, what three pages of the Bible, if you could only have three pages, what three pages would you take? I would take Genesis one, two, and three. Because it has everything. The fall and redemption of man. How God created it. It all starts with God. It ends with God. It's all about God. That's a great place to say amen. Thank you, five of you. You believe that. It's going to be a great day in church. It's a tough crowd today, Dougie. I don't know, man. Maybe you need to come back up and start singing something else, you know? Maybe hello from the other side might get them going this morning. Oh, they woke up. They know that song. Heathens, man. Here we're talking about... When things happen too slowly. But the greatest misconception is that God works slowly and not suddenly. And I need you to see just like in Genesis where God spoke the world into existence in a matter of moments. It happened suddenly, not slowly. If you believe that God works slowly, you may just kind of adhere to a little bit of theistic evolution then. You may just kind of, yeah, I kind of go for that. That things just happen so slowly. And in your Christian life, you're looking around at things that have happened so slowly instead of understanding that God is actually working suddenly, quickly. Go to Isaiah chapter number 43, and let's begin reading verse number one. I love this portion of scripture. And this is at a time where the writer Isaiah is writing to the children of Israel who are in captivity, and he's writing to them to encourage them. To help them. And in verse number one, I love how Isaiah starts it out. He says, But now, thus saith the Lord, that created you, O Jacob, and that formed you, O Israel. I love the word created. You say, Why? Because it speaks power, it speaks ownership, it speaks authority. If you are the creator, you own your creation. You're the owner, you're the creator. And with such, it has gifts and ability endowed by its creator. 
The Bible says that it was formed. This means that God was intricately involved in the process. You do not serve a God who is off at a distance. You, see, you serve a God who is there in the process, forming, developing, and crafting. He formed you. Every part of you. Every part that you like and you dislike, he formed. He was intimately involved in the process. You serve a God who is near, who is close. Oh, Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have bought you back. I have called you by your name. Thou art mine. We are God's this morning. I remember on February 20th, 2009, that was the day I got married. And I remember the moment when my dad, who officiated the wedding, said, you may now kiss your bride. I now had a wife. I was no longer a loser like some of you single people. I was at that moment complete. At that moment, it had all come together. At that moment, it was something special. At that moment, I looked over at her and I said, you are mine. And she said, oh me, what have I done, you know? And it's at that very moment where we realize that, wow, I've got something very special. And God says, I have something very special in you. Verse number two, when you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. When you go the river and through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, thou shalt not be burned. Neither shall the flame kindle upon you. For I am the Lord, thy God, the Holy One of Israel, thy Savior, I gave Egypt for thy ransom, Ethiopia and Seba for thee. Since thou was precious in my sight, thou hast been honorable, and I have loved you. Therefore will I give men for you and people for thy life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring thy seed from the east and gather thee from the west. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, keep not back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Notice if you would, verse number 17. First of all, the writer of this passage starts with the bigness and the majesty and the grandeur of God. And that's always where we start when we have an issue and a problem. You start with the bigness and awesomeness of God. And then he moves into the problem that they were wrestling with. They're in captivity. They're slaves. They're in Babylon. And he starts to use language that points them back to a time that they have been there before. You see, he's reminding them that they were once in captivity. For 400 years, they were in captivity in the country of Egypt. And God is reminding the people, I delivered you then, I can deliver you now. Notice how he says in verse number 18, Remember ye not the former things, neither consider the things of old. Behold, I will do a new thing. Now it shall spring forth, shall you not know it. I will even make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. Behold, I will do a new thing. It shall spring forth. And I love the idea that it's springing forth. It's coming forth. It's happening so fast where there's going to be floods in the desert. And it almost has this picture. If you were in a desert, they have these things that are called flash floods. They just come out of nowhere. You don't necessarily see it. It just kind of happens and it just kind of takes you by surprise. So for some of you that are sitting here right now and you're thinking God is working too slow for me. It's not happening soon enough. It's not happening fast enough. All of a sudden, God is trying to, through the writer of Isaiah, he's trying to remind this country and is going to remind us how quickly God can actually work. 
But as we dive into this passage of scripture and as we uh, pull out some truth that apply to our life, let's stand for a word of prayer. I know you've been sitting and standing, sitting and standing. This is how we keep you awake. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for two years of ministry. I thank you for the lives that have been impacted and the lives that have been changed. And my prayer right now is that we look at your word, that our lives would be touched, we'd be changed, we'd be transformed, that we would not walk out of this theater, not walk out of this mall the same, that we'd walk out with a new perspective, with a new hope, with a new help in our hearts where we know that you're going to do something great in our situation. We love you, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Before you sit down, I need you to find three people and say happy anniversary. You got to find three people and greet them. Say happy anniversary. Three people. Three people. Don't sit down until you see three people. Happy anniversary. Didn't mean to bash it before. <laughs> it was awesome. And once you've done that, you can find your seats. Happy anniversary. Amen. Thank you. I'm going to give you your message early, okay? Here's the point. If you've got your worship guide, pull out the notes. I'm big into taking notes, and I'm going to give you the first three points right off the bat, okay? That way you can fall asleep. That way, well, there's no football to watch today. So this is the one Sunday I get your undivided attention, all right? So this is it. Um, your team didn't make it. It's all right. We can cry later. But, um, we, oh, we got somebody whose teams, they made it. Never mind. All right. There we go. Point number one, God can. Point number two, God did. Point number three, God will. We're going to build off of that this morning, okay? There's a framework, and now we're going to do some some work in the scripture. I hope you came to work this morning. Did you come to work in the word this morning? Or did you just kind of come with a, hey, bless me, feed me, do something if you can mentality? I'll tell you this morning, your mentality and your attitude when you come in here, really, that, that, that'll show you what you'll get. You're going to get, you're going to leave here with what, what you came here with. You came here with an attitude that, hey, I'm here to get something from God. You're going to go out with a full, full heart this morning. But if you came in here and you're just thinking, nah, let's see if this preacher could do whatever he can. I can't do much. I'll be honest. I won't be able to do much. I really won't. But if you came with a soft, receptive, and open heart, then God can do some incredible things this morning. First of all, I need you to see that God did. Go with me in the same passage, verse number 16 and 17. Thus saith the Lord, which makes a way in the sea and a path in mighty waters, which bringeth forth the chariot and the horse, the army, the power. They shall lie down together. They shall not rise. They are extinct. They are quenched as tow. A tow, and then scripture means a wick of a candle. They're extinguished. And I need you to see that he's reminding them of a time gone by when they were in Egypt. But just after Egypt, some of maybe our favorite Bible stories. And if you're not as familiar with it, I'll fill you in. It's the story of the children of Israel. They're coming out of Egypt. And at that point, Pharaoh had let them go. But then he's angry. He's frustrated. And so 600 chariots in Exodus, they're going to come after the people in Exodus chapter number 13. And they're coming towards the people. The people are now afraid because there is a body of water, the Red Sea in front of them. The chariots are chasing them behind them and they're afraid. And here God is reminding the people hundreds of years later that guess what? I delivered the people then and I can deliver you now. The chariots, they had no power. There were 600 chariots. The Bible talks about in detail in Exodus how these were choice chariots. A chariot in that day and age would be like modern day tanks kind of coming down the road and terrifying uh, to see them coming. The children of Israel, they were a nation of slaves. They were not an army. They were not equipped to handle 600 chariots. But even the Egyptians said, hey, we've got 
got to stop fighting because God is fighting for the Israelites. And so God stopped the chariots. There was a great victory. And God split the Red Sea and the children of Israel walked across dry ground. Here is God reminding the people that he has already, that he can. He's saying to the people, hey, guess what? I can do these things. I can work. You see, when you look at your life filled with plans, dreams, and desires, and you see the dreams of a godly marriage, you see the dreams of raising good children, you see the desires to have all those things that God wants for you, but then over those desires, I think some of you and I, we see a word, and that one simple word is impossible. It's impossible for me to have a godly marriage. It's impossible for me to raise kids. That's what some of you are thinking right now. Then some of you, you're thinking something a little bit different. You're not thinking impossible. You're thinking it's just improbable. It's just improbable that I'll have a good marriage. It's just improbable that my kids will turn out. It's just improbable that that loved one will receive Christ and become a Christian. But then there's a third group this morning. And you're looking at the exact same problems, the exact same conditions as everybody else. You're looking at a world where it seems like divorce is happening at an alarming rate. You're looking at a world where it seems like uh, there's all kinds of trouble. Every time you turn on the news, there's another mass shooting. There's more anarchy. There's more chaos. And you're looking at that world, and you're looking at all of its problems. And you're looking at parents who are complaining that their children aren't turning right. You're outright. You're looking at couples who, honestly, my wife talked with people this week who said, somebody's trying to steal my husband. I mean, I'm, I just married this person. Somebody's out there trying to wreck my own marriage right now and maybe you're going through a situation where everything is pulling things apart and you're that third group and you're saying hey it's not that this is impossible it's not that this is improbable but the things that I am facing and the dreams and desires that I have are not impossible they are probable they are inevitable and I like that word inevitable it speaks to the fact that it's going to happen It speaks to, and we don't use this word a whole lot in church world, it speaks to our fate. It speaks that it's going to happen. It speaks to the fact that these things can, because why? Because you and I serve a mighty God. And in verse 1, 2, and 3, it speaks about how great he is, how he's brought salvation, and how great and how strong and how powerful he is. You see, the name of God implies ability. He is called Redeemer because he redeems. He is called Savior because he saves. He is called the bread of life because he gives life. Sometimes we just casually throw out these names of God and we stop and we don't associate the fact that the name ascribes his ability. Some of you, if I were to throw out some names, you would think immediately of their ability. If I said Michael Jordan, immediately what comes to your mind? His basketball ability. If I would throw out some musician immediately, their name, you would think how good they are with their musical ability. If I would throw out the names like Steve Jobs, immediately you would equate, hey, he's just brilliant. He's smart, technologically advanced. These thoughts come to your mind. When you think of God, what thoughts about his abilities come to your mind? And too often, I think we come to these thoughts about God and we forget that they have to do with an attribute of how he wants to work in a certain situation. Instead, we limit God by our very language. You see, God is a deliverer, but do you honestly believe he can deliver? You see, God is called master. It means he has authority over all creation. The Bible even reminds us that all power in heaven and earth is given unto me. All power. 
But some of you keep giving away power and thinking, well, Satan's just fighting me and I don't know if I'm going to beat him this week and I'm just kind of down and discouraged and you're giving up ground to the enemy. Instead of understanding that God says all power in heaven and earth is given unto me, that doesn't leave much for Satan if God said I took it all. That leaves him nothing. And some of us in our very language, we're giving up ground. Our very language, we don't even understand that God can. We don't even acknowledge the fact that God can. And our language is kind of depressing. Our language is kind of like, well, if God wants to, we always say this, and I'm guilty of saying it too, Lord willing. How many have ever said the term, Lord willing? It's kind of like we're giving God an out. Why do we do that? Do we doubt God's power? Do we doubt God's ability? I mean, we read the Old Testament, and is it just a book of stories? Is it just a collection of fairy tales? Is it just like I'm reading Grimm's book of of novels? Is that all it is? Or is this something that actually happened? Or do we serve a living and powerful God who can raise the dead, who can split red seas, who can give sight to the blind, and who can give hearing to the deaf ears? But too often I find ourselves relegating God to a small place in the corner with very little power. That is not my God. If you want to serve that God and be a weak Christian the rest of your life, you can continue living as you are. But if you are saying, I am getting a picture of God like Isaiah did in chapter number six, where he is high and holy and lifted up. If you're getting that picture of that God who is powerful, all of a sudden you're going to start to see God do some incredible things in your life. You will no longer look at God as working slowly, but you'll see him start working suddenly. Why? Because perception is reality. And your perception of God is affecting your reality. And I'm tired of meeting so many Christians who their reality is weak, spiritual, anemic Christianity. We live in a day and age where we need spiritual giants, but instead what we have is spiritual weaklings who are cowering and running and afraid and so worried and so worked up and making sure we've got to get this president in office. Otherwise, it's all just going to go to hell in a handbasket. Hey, Christians thrived under Nero who burned us at the stake. We can put up with whoever they want to send at us. That was a great place to say amen, church. You see, we're at a point where we as Christians, we're so worried and we find other gods that are smaller than the God. We find a small lowercase G-O-D. We may find the God of the credit card to bail us out. We may find the God of government. We may find the God of education. We may find the God of our job instead of entrusting to Jehovah God. And here Isaiah is trying to bring the people back to because he knows they're so discouraged. He knows they are so defeated. And he's saying, I need to bring you back to who our God is. And I need to bring the church back, our church, Southridge, back to who God is this morning. I know you may be struggling with something. I know you may be discouraged about something but you this morning did wake up and realize who the god that is that you serve he's powerful he's mighty he's omnipotent he's uninhibited by anything the world the flesh and the devil can throw at him hey on the cross he conquered it all it's done we have nothing to be afraid of but why do we keep walking around as if lord willing hey how about we just right now make a decision we're not going to say lord willing we just walk in faith Because Lord willing is our excuse to not exercise faith. That's all it is. It's our attempt to sound spiritual, but not acknowledge faith. And apart from faith, it is impossible to please him is what scripture says. Amen, church? It's impossible. So why do we keep saying, Lord willing, 
Let's get that out of the vocabulary. And let's say I'm walking in faith now. I am a believer. I am born again. I am blood bought. I've got the Holy Spirit of God inside of me. I can do all things through Christ, which strengthens me. I will no longer be a spiritual anemic Christian. I can walk out in victory. I can conquer my temper. It's not just who I am. It's not just my attitude. It's not just my faults and my failures. No, no, no. I am born again believer and I can walk that out because I am a conqueror according to Romans chapter number eight. And we need to once again acknowledge that God can this morning. Say it out loud. God can. One more time, please. God can. I don't know if you need to walk, wake up every morning, say it 30 or 40 times before you go to your job and before you go to bed at night, maybe just keep saying it to yourself. God can, God can, God can. You don't know how you're going to face this situation, but God can, God can. You see, we see how strong God is and that should humble us to the point where we realize how much we need him. See, a lot of preaching today is to build you up. I'm not interested in building you up. I'm interested in building God up. And when we see how great God is, we're going to see how small we are. And that's a good thing. Get this. The world is going to dwarf you and I. The world is big. But God dwarfs the world. He created it all. He's over it all. And God can work things out this morning. But too often it's easier to bring our theology down to the level of our reality than it is to take our reality up to the level of our theology. See what we often do? We often limit God. We take our reality and say, God is no bigger than this mortgage. God is no bigger than this divorce. God is no bigger than this drug-addicted teenager. God is no bigger than this government. God is no bigger than this. And you're bringing almighty God down to your reality. Let's bring our reality up to God. And let's say, God, here's my reality. Here's what I live in day to day. I've got a spouse who doesn't know you. I've got children who are away from you. But I know you can do something in their heart. I know you can take care of this problem. God, I've got this disease. God, I've got this problem. I'm bringing it to you. The Bible says in 1 Peter 5, 8, casting all your care upon him for he cares for you. But a lot of times we never bring our reality up to our theology. Instead, we're bringing it down. We're doing the exact opposite. So this morning, we got to get back to the point that God can but then I need you to see secondly that God did God did you see he starts with God and then he moves into the second phase whereas look how God saved us he saved us from the nation of Egypt the superpower of that day but I love how God works and some of you are still not convinced that God works suddenly there's a great pastor scripture in John chapter number two for sake of time we won't read it but let me just go through it with you in chapter two of John this is the first recorded miracle of Jesus Christ Jesus Christ is at a, at a wedding ceremony in, the, in Canaan, not too far from Nazareth, his hometown. My wife and I have visited there when we went to the Holy Land. And we were there in the town. You kind of get to see the layout of everything. And, and weddings were big to do. You got to think they didn't have cool movie theaters where they could have church and, and get out and theme parks. They didn't have that. So weddings were kind of the social gathering. It's where you got to see people would come in from everywhere. So a wedding, everybody would kind of come together. And there's Jesus. Now, weddings in biblical times, if you thought today's weddings were out of hand you 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 don't understand today we're, we're pretty moderate some of you you'll watch these uh bridezilla and you'll watch some of these shows you know the best dress or whatever and uh, you see these elaborate weddings and you're just blown away by the hundreds of thousand dollars that'll go into a wedding you're like mine was the justice of the peace uh, uh safeway cake and uh we got it done like 
that's just how we roll, you know, and uh, we don't need none of this trappings and stuff. I mean, I look at some people and I'm like, you can either buy a car or a house or you can have that wedding. And uh, they're like, I still want the wedding. I'm like, okay, you know, not much we could do, you know. And uh, so the weddings back then would go on not just one day, two days. They would often go on for a week or more, depending on how wealthy the family was. And so because you have a wedding that was so long, it was the the groom's job and the bride's job to make sure the guests were well fed. Now at this wedding, something bad is happening. What is happening in John chapter number two is they had run out of wine at this wedding. Now, this is an embarrassing situation because it was a it was a custom, cultural custom that 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 they were starting their marriage, and this was pointing to the strength of their marriage, and it would be a social blight. You would be remembered as, oh yeah, I was at your wedding. Yeah, you ran out of food at the buffet line. Okay, yeah, very disappointing. I was, I wanted some more uh, little of those chicken fingers, and you were out, and uh, I wanted some more uh, feta cheese, and you were out of that, and, uh, you know, just really disappointed at your wedding. That's, they, they didn't want to have that. Now, I do not know if Jesus' mother Mary is a friend of the bride and groom. Scripture does not tell us, but Jesus' mom was there, and she was concerned. So she goes to Jesus, who is a part or is at the wedding, and tells Jesus, hey, Jesus, they've run out of wine here at the ceremony. And Jesus says, woman, what have I to do with you? Now, teenager, stop for a second. We are supposed to model Jesus, but when your mom says clean up your room, do not say, and I repeat, woman, what have I to do with thee? That's how you get slapped, okay? I'm just telling you it's how it happens. Not that I'm speaking from experience, all right? So, uh, well, maybe. Um, anyway. So, John chapter number two, woman, what have I to do with thee? My hour has not yet come. I haven't begun my public ministry. His public ministry started after he was baptized and after he was tempted 40 days, okay? So, that's where his public ministry started. He said, I'm not ready to start the ministry, but at this point, he's going to do a miracle. What's he going to do? He's going to take six water pots, and he says to the servants, fill them up with water, and then he turns the water into wine. We see the story. We know it. We taught it. You saw the flannel graph, but here's what we miss in the passage. Today, by modern standards, if you're going to make a bottle of wine today with our technology and everything, it takes four weeks to make the bottle of wine. Four weeks, even with all our technology. Now, if you're Baptist, this is not fermented wine. If you're anything but Baptist, it is fermented wine, okay? So you just find where you land. It's okay, all right? We're all friends. It's okay. Now, here's what's happening in this passage of Scripture. This wine... We just kind of think like, yeah, it just kind of happened. But you need to understand something. Jesus shortcutted a big process. The process of you take the seed, you plant the seed, the plant grows, and then you've got grapes, and you've got to harvest the grapes. You then have to squish the grapes. You then have to filter the grapes. And then you put it into these wine skins, and then you let it set, and you let it ferment or not ferment, whatever you theologically want to find yourself. That's fine. And it it takes a process. The process would easily be at least a year to make wine. Easily. But here's what's even more interesting. What did the governor of the feast say about the wine when he tasted it? He said, this is the best. So, not that I'm speaking from experience, but they say, they say, the better the wine, the older it is. That's what they say. And so, they, the governor, this leader had said, this is the best. So, that means even at the minimum of a year, This wine, they say good wine could take four, eight, or more years. So here we are in Scripture, and Jesus is not going to wait around a year or four years or eight years. No, no, he's going to take that process, and he's going to say, I'm going to do it in a moment. I'm going to transform it right here and right now. You see, when Jesus began his ministry, he didn't wait. It wasn't a slow process. It was suddenly. 
You say, well, that's one example. Can you give me another preacher man? Yeah, the maniac of Gadara. Here he is. He's a maniac, possessed with 7,000 devils. And the Bible says when Jesus had come out from, from him, and immediately the next verse, the Bible says he was clothed and sitting in his right mind. It wasn't a process. It didn't take forever. It was in a moment. You see, Jesus didn't do anything that took a long time. Everything happened quickly. See, because God can and God did. And so for you in your situation right now, you're still stuck on that it's taking God so long. The fact is it's not taking God so long. It's our perception which is inhibiting our reality. You see, you serve a God who is unhindered in death, unlimited in dominion. And Christians are so despondent and so distant from him. And so we need to see that God can and that God did. But then more importantly, you need to see that God will. You need to say this to yourself, that God will work in my situation. That God wants to work in my situation. That's the point of this passage, is that here the writer in Isaiah is trying to remind the people that God will. And I love how he starts out verse number 18. He says, he makes, he makes a big to-do. This is so funny. You got to see the humor in scripture. He makes a big to-do about how great God is and then all the things God's done. But then why would he in verse number 18 say, remember not the former things? Like all of that, just, just forget about that. What? Okay, Isaiah, I'm confused. <laughs> I'm confused. And as I began to think about this, I was like, why would he take the time to write it down, to remind the people, and then say, you know what, all that, just, just forget about it. Unless God has a bigger goal and a bigger plan. And guess what? God has a bigger goal and a bigger plan. You see, God never wanted us to rely on previous, past miracles and provision. He never wanted us to. He never wanted our faith to be looking backward. He wanted our faith to always be looking forward. It's like you trying to drive a car backwards. You don't get very far. It's very difficult. And some of you are living your Christian life kind of peering out the rearview mirror instead of facing your faith forward. You see, because God wants to do something that eclipsed everything he had ever done in the past. You see, the children of Israel, when the first time when they crossed the Red Sea, they were blown away by that, how God split the Red Sea. And then two chapters later, after that amazing miracle, they have one chapter of praise, they sing a song, but then another chapter later, the people begin to complain, and the people are complaining to Moses, and what are they complaining about? They're complaining about the fact that they're going to starve. And so... Moses prays, and God sends them manna, manna from heaven. What's so interesting about this manna is what they lived off of. It's what they subsisted on, and God took care of things. In the New Testament, the children of Israel come back to Jesus, and they say, hey, if you're really God, give us a sign. Do you know what sign they asked for? They said, in the wilderness, you fed us with manna. And Jesus is like, wait a minute, no, no, no. I already did that. I'm not doing that trick again. Y'all seen that one. Y'all went to that show. I'm not going to repeat myself. He said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do you one better. He said, that manna, you're going to eat it. You're going to get hungry. But then in the same passage of scripture, you know what he says to him? He says, I am the bread of life. If you partake of me, you will never hunger again. He says, that manna, it fed you temporarily, but I'm going to give you something that is eternal. 
eternal. Here we have a picture of God saying, hey, I'm going to outdo myself. I can, I did, and I will. You need to see it here in scripture that God can change your situation, that God will change your situation. Instead of kind of relevating God to these small, confined zones. You see, don't confine him to what he's already done. Don't look at your life and say, well, I've got a big bill and God always sat and took care of it through my job. So I'm trusting my job now. God doesn't want you to always trust your job, how you're going to make it. Some of you make a commitment to tithe and to give to missions and to give above your tithes and offerings. And sometimes you're relying on your job to supply instead of relying on God to supply. Or some of you, you're relying on your spouse to meet your needs and fulfill you. When God is saying, wait a minute, you rely on me. Don't always look for the same source. Don't always try to bring what I've done in the past and use it for the future. Because I see so many Christians, they're so stuck in the past. And let me tell you this. You can never, you'll never enjoy the present if you're always wishing for what was. You'll never enjoy what is. Some of us, we say things like, I just wish for the good old days. Oh, man, back in my day. Oh, man, back when Reagan was around. Yeah, buddy. And don't get me wrong. I'm all for that. Don't get me wrong. Yeah, there are some days when we were doing better. I get that. But the fact is, we're putting God in a little box when we do that. We're saying, God, yeah, you've done all these things in the past, but this is how I need you to work, and this is it. When God is saying, I don't fit in your box. I'm too big for your box. God is too big for your box this morning. Stop trying to put God in your box. That God, hey, my marriage is on the rock, so you've got to fix it just like you did in the past. So I'm going to buy roses, get the teddy bear, show up with chocolate, throw them at her feet, get on my hands and knees, say I'm sorry, and go watch football. That's how it worked the last time. I'm going to do it again. No. She wants Tiffany's. I'm just saying. All right. Just, just, it's always Tiffany's. All right. That's the answer. It's always Tiffany's. That's free. I know. So understand that when it comes to putting God in a box, you got to get out of this mindset that this is how God works because God always did things differently. God always communicated with his people in a unique and amazing way. Imagine when the church first started, when it first came down. How did Jesus manifest his presence? By cloven tongues of fire. That there were literally little flames of fire sitting on people's heads. We've never seen that again in history. Why? God wanted to manifest himself in a unique way. Imagine going to that church service where literally they were saying the pastor's on fire. Like, it's not that his preaching's good. Literally, he's on fire. Like, it's there. I see it. And then they look, you're on fire. You're on fire. Everybody's on fire. What a unique service to go to. You would feel like an idiot. Like, I missed that service. I could have been on fire too, but I wasn't there. See, I need you to see something. That we constantly want to put God in these these small little constraints instead of unlimiting God. You see, so many times we we just narrow. But God wants to transcend human imagination. God wants to do something bigger. But if you look at verse number 19, the Bible says, Behold, I will do a new thing. It shall spring forth. Shall you not even know it? Notice the word spring forth. That word confused me until I began to study it out just a little bit this week. And the word is a Hebrew word, spring. It actually means to sprout. And as soon as I saw that, it kind of un- unlocked something for me, church. Because I'm constantly frustrated with my own spiritual development. I'm constantly frustrated with my own development in the church. I'm constantly frustrated with these confines in my life and these things about me that I want to grow and develop. And I've always been frustrated because I never saw the development right when I wanted the development. And I just got to these moments where it's almost easier just to quit. But then once I understand that it's sprouting, 
Then I begin to see it. You see, when a seed is planted in the ground, it's at that point something is still happening, is it not? I just can't see it. It's hidden below the surface. But does that mean something's not happening? No, something's happening. Matter of fact, a lot is happening. We just don't see it. You see, God is doing so much in your heart and in my life, we just don't see it. And we get discouraged because we are, um, how shall I put it? We are progress-oriented people. We are achievement-based, success-based. We idolize achievement and success, and we don't see it right here, right now. Our children aren't exactly what we want them to be. We get frustrated when I need you to see that it's sprouting, that the seed is there. And you're saying, well, it's just a seed. It's not very strong. Have you ever walked down a sidewalk, and there the concrete is beginning to bow and buckle and the concrete in some points you honestly you'll trip over it because a root a sprout has begun to push through that hard concrete you thought god could never change my husband oh yeah oh god could never change my children oh yeah Oh, God could never change this situation. God could never turn these things around. And God is saying, hey, it is sprouting right now. It's in seed form. And for some of you, it's beyond seed form. Some of you, you're harvesting, man. Life is good. It's harvesting. It's not slowly. It's suddenly. And it's so much you can hardly handle it. God is opening up the windows of heaven and he is flooding you with blessing. But some of you, you're still in this seed form where God says, hey, I'm working. I am working. Don't give up in the process. Don't walk away from this. I am working. The seed is coming. Just wait for it. It's happening. It's growing. It's developing because we want strong roots for this thing to come forward. It is sprouting. It's coming up in your life. There are things in this church. There are some issues that have come up. But guess what? I've never preached on them. I've never touched on them, but there'll be people that they'll come up and they'll say, hey, I'm making a decision that God is speaking to me in my life about this. And I knew it was going on. I didn't judge them and I wasn't preaching against them. But guess what? God began to just do something in their heart. And guess what? There was a seed there. And all of a sudden that seed began to manifest itself. There are some of you where God is putting a burden on your heart to do something more than you've ever done. And that's because that seed is now manifesting itself. Some of you, you're like my teenager. All of a sudden I just walked in the room and there they were reading their Bible. That seed that was planted is beginning to grow. Some of you, you're looking at your spouse and you're like, they're changing. They used to get mad and upset and all of a sudden something's happening. Why? That seed is suddenly coming and it's happening. But I love the language that it's springing forth. It's kind of like it's going to catch you off guard. This thing is going to happen so quickly. But if God is doing it and God wants to do it, what is stopping God from doing it? There's still sometimes a stoppage, a plug, a something in the way. And we're running out of time, so I've got to go through this quickly. But notice the last part of the verse number 19. It says, behold, I will do a new thing now. It shall spring forth. Shall you not know it? And at first I thought that meant like, you know, it's going to happen. I'm not even going to see it. I'm just going to be like, whoa, what just happened? But that's not what he's talking about. You see, God wants to do a work. Nothing can stop God's work. But did you see at the end of it where it says know it? There's a question mark. You see, sometimes we don't look at the punctuation in our Bibles. We're focused on the words. We don't see the punctuation. But there's something amazing about that punctuation. It asks a question. Shall you not know it? But the word know is not like we think. Gnosko, knowledge, that's not what it's talking about. It's talking about will you not embrace it? It's saying God wants to do something. And the thing that is stopping God from doing what he wants to do is not what you think it is. You think it's God. You think it's your spouse. You think it's your children. You think it's your job. 
You think it's even your sin. It's not. It's none of those. None of the above. What is stopping the working and the power of God from working is whether or not you will embrace it. Whether or not you will accept it. Whether or not you will receive what God is sending to you. There was a man, he was interviewing a wide receiver who makes $10 million. And the man said, for a guy who makes $10 million for catching a pigskin, why do you drop it? (laughs) Kind of a tough question, huh? And the receiver had the best answer. He said, the only reason I would ever drop that ball is if I lose my focus. He said, but if I'm focused on that ball. And he says, the only reason I would lose my focus if I could hear those footsteps coming of a 300-pound linebacker ready to take me down. But he said, if I don't lose my focus, I will catch it. What I think often happens is the same thing that happened to the children of Israel. And I wish we had more time. But the children of Israel, the chariots that they thought were going to destroy them, did not destroy them. Didn't even hurt them. Nobody got a scratch from one chariot. But what killed that generation? That generation never saw the promised land. Not one of them, except for Joshua and Caleb. Only two. Moses didn't see the promised land. So what killed them? Complacency. They got comfortable. They got complacent. No, we're just fine in the wilderness. That's what killed them. Entire generation. They were not receiving what God was sending. Instead, they just thought, we're fine. Some of you right here, right now, you have stopped receiving what God is trying to send. God, week after week, has given you a church to meet and preaching out of the word of God. And some of you, you're like, ah, am I going to show up this week? Hmm, I don't know. Anything on TV? Any of the kids got some sports activity? Hey, is there anything happening around? Oh, look, there's a finger painting festival. Let's go. Why? We don't even finger paint. I don't know. But what happens is we get complacent. And instead of staying in a posture, in a mode that says, I'm open, I'm receiving from God, we're not even ready. And God's saying, hey, it's springing forth. I want to do it, but you're not embracing it. So real quick as we close. Stop avoiding what you should be embracing. Stop avoiding what you should be embracing. God is not going to compete for control over my life. He's not going to do it. God is not going to try to compete with your little league soccer games. God is not going to try to compete with whatever thing you've got going on with work. God's not going to compete with it. That's not the type of God he is. He just expects you to understand that he is Lord over all, sovereign. He is God. And there is none like him. And that he created you for his glory. That's what this passage says. And he expects you to treat him as such. He's not going to compete with your little concerns. And many people don't understand that God is not competing for your control. And you kind of want God to woo you. And God to kind of uh, 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 tickle your fancies. And kind of make you want him. That's not what church is about. And sadly there's a lot of churches that are about that. They're about what can we bait and switch and gimmick and get you in here for. But what happened to the Christians who said, hey, I'm a Christian. I'm a believer. I understand it. And God is saying this morning, then okay, then live like it. Act like it. Be where you should be. Do what you should do. God's not going to compete for control over my life. There's lots of competing concerns. 
And then sadly, we often reduce God to our biggest failure and our greatest fear. You see, God does a new thing in order to produce new things for our praise and to his glory. You know why God does new things? Not just to impress you. Because he wants you to give him praise. He wants you to always have a new song in your heart. A new reason to be grateful. A new reason to be thankful. A new reason to want to just get up and say, God, thank you for another day. Thank you for the victory you've given me in my marriage. Thank you for the victory you've given me with my children. Thank you for the victory you've given me in my personal devotions. Thank you for the victory you've given me over my sins. Thank you for the victory that you give me in Christ. Thank you for that. And I'm going to praise you for that. When was the last time you had a new song of praise over something God had done? The Bible says his mercies are new every morning. But when we never step out, we never embrace what God wants to do, we miss out on all that God has for us. And some of us, our Christian life is so boring. We're like, yeah, I don't want to go to church. God hasn't done anything. When in reality, the fault does not lie with God. The fault is ours on the receiving end. God is sending. Are we receiving? There's so much more we could say. Let's stand, church. we got to wrap it up. I'm going to call the band back up. They're going to play again during our invitation. Can I have everybody's head bowed, every eye closed? God can. God did. And God will. But we need to stop avoiding what we should be embracing. God is calling us. He is calling you to live once again a Christian life where you embrace what God has called you to, where you are no longer living a life that you're just pushing back against what God is doing. So this morning, I'm going to ask you, I'm going I'm to implore you, would you once again open your heart to God? Would you once again say, God, yeah, I've been resisting. I've been complacent. I've been putting you in a box, putting you in a corner. And instead of seeing how great you are, God, instead of seeing how powerful you can be in this situation, I've kind of backed you into a corner. And this morning, Lord, forgive me of that. Help me, Lord, to see you high and lifted up.